Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Evolver, sponsored by the Alchemist Kitchen. Hosted by Ken Jordan. If meditation didn't exist, would scientists have had to invent it? From the research being done on experienced meditators and novices alike, we're seeing a wide range of health benefits. It reduces stress, improves immune functioning, lowers blood pressure, reduces inflammation, helps you sleep, strengthens memory, deepens compassion, slows the aging process, and promotes overall emotional wellness. And that's likely only part of it. Unfortunately, when we're born, we don't receive a user's manual for our mind. So we fumble our way through life, slowly happening upon techniques and practices that allow us to open up capabilities that we never realized we had. We discover that a calm mind notices more, that holding our body in certain postures raises our energy level, that our breath correlates in remarkable ways to our state of awareness. Ancient spiritual lineages, from the shamans of the Andes to the mystics of the mainline religions, place meditation at the center of their traditions. And clearly, for good reason. But approaching meditation from that direction can literally be an act of faith and may seem just as irrational to an outside observer as knowing how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. That's why the work of Daniel Siegel is so compelling. Dan is a scientist by training and disposition who found his way, unbeknownst to himself, into creating a powerful, innovative meditation technique that is now used by many thousands of people. As we discuss in today's episode, he came to it as a psychiatrist with no prior experience of meditation. But his study of the brain and body and how to treat his suffering patients led him to develop a set of practices that he calls the wheel of awareness. After the fact, he discovered that the wheel weaves together the three pillar meditation practices that have been studied by scientific researchers into a single exercise, focused attention meditation, open awareness, and compassion training. In the process of inventing a 21st century secular form of meditation, Dan discovered that not only were his patients benefiting in the ways I just described, They were also having profound spiritual epiphanies. People who had never meditated before were saying that, while doing the practice, time disappeared. They felt connected to everything. They sensed a deep tranquility and were filled with joy. Like the true scientific investigator he is, Dan explored what this was all about from his vantage point as a specialist in interpersonal neurobiology. His observations are fascinating and deep, and with a profundity that we could all learn from. Some of the conversation does get a bit technical, but please stick with it, because later in the discussion, Dan opens up about his own personal practice and relationship to this work, which makes it all resonate in a wonderful way. What's at stake here, Dan makes clear, is a recalibration of what it means to be human, 
how we see ourselves, how we relate to one another, and how we connect to and care for the natural world. At its heart is an effort to avoid planetary catastrophe by rewriting the human story from one of separation into one of interconnection, from fear to love. I think you'll be as impressed and excited by what Dan is up to as I am. Dr. Dan Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine, a co-founding director of the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center, and the executive director of the Mindsight Institute. He is the New York Times bestselling author of many books, including Brainstorm and Mindsight, and co-author of Parenting from the Inside Out and The Whole Brain Child. His new book, Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence, is a hands-on guide for the groundbreaking meditation practice, The Wheel of Awareness, and looks in-depth at the science that underscores meditation's effectiveness. We live by a myth that there is a dividing line between science and soul. Soul is fuzzy, intuitive, subjective, indistinct, soft. Science is crystalline, solid, repeatable, objective, hard, But as Dan demonstrates through his own path, that distinction may prove to be illusory, as our grounded empirical investigation of human health opens up new, rigorous roads to timeless spiritual truths. A new reality is already there, waiting to be discovered, if only we pay close enough attention. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does, but for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, and scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, 
cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. Dan, thank you so much for joining us and being on the show today. Ken, it's a pleasure to be here. There is a mindfulness explosion going on in the culture. There's, as I, I saw a statistic the other day, it said 9.9% of the workforce does meditation in the United States. Did you see it coming? No, no. In fact, I'm pretty new to it myself. So uh, this word meditation was not something that I was really using much, uh, if at all, uh, until recently. So... Uh, so no, I, I wouldn't see it coming because I wouldn't even know it was something to wonder if it was coming. <laughs> How did it call you? Well, I mean, there's two ways it called me. One, uh, my wife, who I've been with for 34 years, has been a longtime meditator. And I just thought it was one of those kind of quirky things your partner does and you just take a deep breath and go, well, whatever. And then I wrote a book called The Developing Mind, which kind of summarized ways of thinking about the mind as this kind of embodied and relational process. And then our daughter was in preschool, and I wrote a book after doing workshops with our daughter's preschool director, Mary Hartzell. And we were looking for some word that embraced the notion that a parent should be very conscious and intentional and pay attention and basically be awake. So those were a lot of words. So Mary and I said, well, there's got to be one word that summarizes all that. So we said, well, I guess we could say be mindful. So we put it in the book, Parenting from the Inside Out. Then when the book came out, the parents reading the book would say, oh, when are you going to teach us to meditate? This is in 2003, 2004. And I was already doing things that were a little strange in academia, like saying relationships change the brain or the mind is broader than the brain. And people were really agitated with me. So I didn't want something else to put on that list of things to get me alienated from the mainstream. So I said, what do you mean meditate? What are you talking about? They go, look in your book. It says meditation is the main thing. I said, show me. Which book are you talking about? So they opened up Parenting from the Inside Out, and they point to the phrase, be mindful. And they said, there it is, be a meditator. And I go, what? They go, be a meditator. I said, it says be mindful. That means be conscientious, be awake, be caring, be intentional. That's what it means to be mindful. They go, no. It means be a meditator. I go, what kind of meditation is that? And they look at me like I'm out of my mind. And they go, it means mindfulness meditation. And I said, what is that? And right after that, literally like a month after those kinds of interactions were happening, I get a call from Rich Simon at the Psychotherapy Network. And he says, I want you to come do the keynote address. And the other keynote presenter is a guy named John Kabat-Zinn. So I said, well, who's he? And he goes, he does this work in mindfulness. And I go, oh, my God, another mindfulness thing. What is this stuff? And so in preparation of being on a panel with John Kabat-Zinn, I read John's two books and I read his like two or three papers. There weren't many in those days. This is 2004, getting ready for a 2005 
meeting and then I'm on the panel with John and I said, I've read your stuff. It's interesting. And one thing that's really peculiar is that you're talking about this thing called mindfulness meditation, which I don't know anything about, but your outcome results of the research are identical to my research field, which is attachment, where I study parent-child relationships. And when they're secure, we come up with the same results. You come up with mindfulness meditation that correlate with a third finding, integration, the linking of different parts of the brain. And his eyes get wide open. He goes, well, I don't know anything about attachment, but you don't know anything about meditation, so you should go meditate, which was a great suggestion. So he got me invited to this week-long silent retreat. So the first time I meditated was for a week in silence with these hundred scientists, a lot of them brain scientists. Of course, you couldn't talk to Wait, them. So your first meditation experience was a week-long Vipassana retreat? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think I may have done a small session here or there, but yeah, but basically... My... Surrounded by people who you could not talk to who you wanted to talk to. Exactly. I love this. Right. My next-door neighbor was Paul Ekman, this researcher on emotion, and all I could see is watch. I could watch his toes, you know, as we were, he was my next door neighbor, and I would go, I wish I could talk to something beyond the sole of his feet, you know. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's how I got introduced to it, and I wrote a book called The Mindful Brain about being a novice, introduced this whole mindfulness field. That was back in 2006, and, uh, you know, John and I have taught together a bit, and we'll teach together again in the near future, and it's just been fascinating to be an outsider from the formal mindfulness practice or Buddhist tradition that a lot of the research comes, studies Buddhist training, but I have no background in that. And it's just been interesting to learn from these wise, really dedicated practitioners from my own perspective, which comes from a totally different field. I'm an attachment researcher, but I also work in a field called interpersonal neurobiology. And we look at the mind and offer a definition of it and what a healthy mind is and all that stuff. So applying the lens of interpersonal neurobiology to this other field of mindfulness has just been kind of a wonderful invitation to kind of think outside the box about what you usually think about meditation or mindfulness. So that's, that's kind of what the journey was. To what do you attribute the fact that these two different ways of looking at the mind or about essentially, you know, personal health ended up overlapping to such a great degree? With the relational yeah. world, yeah. I mean, it's a great question, Ken, and I became obsessed with that question. What I'll just simply say is that at the time I learned about this stuff, it was about over a dozen years when I was still at full-time at the university, really trying to ask the question, what is the mind and how does the mind relate to, let's say, the brain or relationships? So the background is that for about a dozen years, I had been writing about how the mind was this emergent process of energy flow that was a flow happening inside your whole body, not just in your head. And it was a flow where skull or skin didn't limit it. So it happened in our relationships. Although that alienated a lot of formal academicians and researchers because no one talks like that. For me, it helped bring a link between anthropology and sociology, for example, and linguistics with neuroscience and other aspects of psychology that really saw mind as brain activity. But I thought mind was broader than the brain and bigger than the body. And so when I learned about the mindfulness world 12 years later, I applied that lens. And I think what mindfulness meditation does is create a form of internal attunement, what's called an integrative state, where you're differentiating and linking different aspects in the inner mind 
that parallels the relational mind being integrated with secure attachment that is a, a loop that integration within and integration between mutually reinforce each other so that you can see, for example, that impairments to that relational integration lead to impairments in integration in the brain. That's what the research would later show. And mindfulness meditation, basically what it does, it integrates the brain. When you say integrates, what do you mean by that word yeah. specifically? So let's define it. So integration, the way I'm using it, is simply defined as a system has different parts and they're honored for their differences or specialization, and then they're linked. An integrated system is both functionally integrated and structurally integrated. What that means is that you don't get rid of the differences and you create linkages that allow a synergy to emerge. So the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. For example, it's not like a smoothie where you're putting something in a blender and it's homogenous. It remains heterogeneous, but it is now coordinated and balanced because you're linking these different parts. It's more like a fruit salad. So in this way, you can study from mathematics of complex systems optimize something called self-organization when they're differentiating and linking to it. So integration was the word I chose back in the early 90s because the mathematicians didn't have a name for it. And it's different from the way they use integration, but in any event, they talk about differentiation and linkage, optimizing self-organization so you create harmony and five features where your spells the word faces, but it's flexible, F, adaptive is A, coherent, which is the math term for resilient, C, energize a state of vitality and s is stable so if you just remember that faces flow it's like a river flowing in harmony one bank of the river is chaos the other bank is rigidity and basically that explains all of human suffering explains the entire dsm diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders and so far every study of a psychiatric disorder has revealed the individuals with that disorder have impaired integration in the brain you can show that the following three structures can be impaired. The corpus callosum is the linking set of structures that link the differentiated left and right hemisphere. The hippocampus is a structure that links widely separated memory systems to each other in the brain. The prefrontal cortex behind your forehead links your cortex, the middle areas called the limbic areas, the brainstem, the input from the body, and even the social world. So five energy and information flow sources are coordinated and balanced when we talk about integration. And then a fourth way you can describe integration in the brain is called the connectome. The connectome was the term we use, connect, and then the letters O-M-E, for the differentiated, more subtly differentiated areas and how they're linked. So you can look at functional or structural interconnectivity of the connectome as the words they use. And amazingly, the connectome is less interconnected with developmental abuse and neglect. And then in separate studies, mindful awareness training creates more a more interconnected connectome, grows your hippocampus, grows your corpus callosum, grows your prefrontal cortex. And amazingly, another study of the connectome shows the best predictor of every measure of well-being they could find was how interconnected your connectome is, meaning how integrated your brain is, is the number one predictor of well-being and happiness. So, and I'm going to botch this because I just, I'm a liberal arts guy and I haven't read enough of the right books. Or but, maybe you've read exactly the right books. <laughs> <laughs> so That remains to be seen. There's a sort of popular conception of what it is to be a person, which basically goes, I am I. I am who I am. I know what it is to be 
myself, and then there's the stuff outside myself, which I come in contact with, which affects me in various ways, much of which, frankly, is frustrating and difficult and makes my life a real pain in the ass, but some of it is actually also beautiful and helpful. What you're suggesting is a different way of thinking what it is to have a self, Yeah. where things are in a state of flow, where different aspects of that self are in constant motion, and that motion also includes connecting with the things that may not be necessarily happening within my own cranium, but are flows that are happening with what's going on outside of myself. And that the neuroscience that we're doing, the solid science, is developing this sort of second version of what it is to be a self that's very different than the traditional Western idea of like me-centered, focused, going after what I need to do in the world, and then coming into contact with those other things that are outside of me and often are kind of challenging me. Is that kind of a fair way to look at it? Or can you correct that? Well, there's so much in what you just said that's so powerful and so beautifully inquired about. So let me go uh, backwards. The first thing I just want to honor the field of neuroscience and say that no, what I'm speaking about is from a view of interpersonal neurobiology, which is different from neuroscience. We basically take all the fields of disciplined ways of understanding reality. And let's just start with the science side. We take math, physics, chemistry, biology, including neuroscience and genetics and medicine, uh, psychology, including all its different divisions, linguistics, sociology, anthropology, and everything in between. And basically say, if all of these disciplines are correct, but have their own view of the elephant, can we look at the whole elephant? The author E.O. Wilson writes about something called consilience. So we would say that we're looking for a consilient approach. Neuroscience is one branch of understanding the nervous system. And cognitive neuroscience, for example, tries to understand how mental processes and brain processes co-arise. Many neuroscientists, not all, would say that the mind is simply an output of the brain's activity. Mind is what brain does is a common statement from the field of neuroscience, my field psychiatry. I'm also trained as a psychological researcher. Many people in psychology would say that. And so I would just be careful that what I'm about to say does not come from the field of neuroscience. It's not accepted by the majority of neuroscientists, as far as I can tell. For some, it's heresy to say the mind is broader than the brain and not equivalent to brain activity. So I just want to honor their perspective and not attribute to them views that are certainly not at least what they say publicly. Noted. That was my mistake to use the word neuroscience in that context, because that's just how little I understand neuroscience. Okay, but, no, okay. but that's, that's fine. And maybe in 10 years, it'll be a common view, but I just want to really honor their yes. point of view. So the point of view I'm presenting builds on everything you're asking about, which it starts with the four-letter word you identified, self. And then in your beautiful explication of that question, you were saying I and me, and there's I in here and not I out there. And so... Um, this is actually the topic of my next book, and I get into a lot in Aware. I think the way contemporary culture has defined the self is built on what Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago. 
that the mind and all its joys and sorrows is simply and only an output of your brain in your head. William James, 125 years ago, reaffirmed that. And modern neuroscience and modern psychology, modern psychiatry, often, not always, but often take that stance. I think that that's part of a much larger story. And if you buy into what Hippocrates said and everyone else following is sort of just repeating what he said, I think it's not only unfair to individuals to buy that, but it's killing the planet. And that the lie of the separate self, let's just use that term, that the self is defined by your skull or the self is defined only by your body, just like the mind is only coming from your head, of course your brain influences mental life, but it doesn't end there. That's the point. So if you only believe mind is in your brain or the self is when you point to your body, we're going to end life on earth because it's that socially constructed view of self as separate that gets built into how parents raise children. It gets into how communities interact with each other. It gets into how teachers treat students. It gets into how media presents the self. This gets into a lot of interesting complexities, but we'll just start with a simple view of it. There's one level of a way of understanding things where energy patterns come into this little baby who's born, and they have to somehow organize those energy patterns, light, sound, touch, taste, smell, all these energy patterns from outside the body. Then there's all these energy patterns from inside the body. And part of what the human brain does is it makes concepts and categories. And one of those is about self. So if someone says, little Kenny, you know, hi, little Kenny. Hey, Kenny. You're, okay, now we're going to send you to preschool, Kenny, and, you know, share your toys with the other kids. And now what I want you to do is do well in your spelling test, Kenny. And then I want you to get into the best, you know, middle school, Kenny, because that'll allow you to get into the best high school so you can hurry up and make sure Kenny gets into the best college. And then when you're in college, Ken, you know, it's all about you, Ken, and, and accumulate stuff for Ken. So Ken has a lot of stuff, you know, things and degrees, and it's all about you, Ken. It's about you, Ken. And, you know, find the right partner, Ken, so you can get into the most competitive graveyard, you know? So it's like this (laughs) running and running and running, right? (laughs) Yes. So then you start accumulating stuff because that's what you're told. It's a socially constructed belief system. Parents do it. Inevitably, they do it. Schools do it. Science does it. Society does it. So, of course, you don't question it. So then you get 100 units of stuff. And you go, I don't feel so fulfilled. Oh, maybe it's a thousand units I need. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Now you race, race, race. I got, now I got my thousand. God, I don't, I don't feel any more fulfilled. I don't have meaning. I don't have purpose. I don't have connection. Oh, maybe I need 10,000 units. So now you're racing, racing. Now I got my 10,000. On and on and on and on. Now you got to get that seventh house. I got to get the seventh house. I got to get a company that's bigger. I got to, so when we, when I talk about the lie of the separate self, it's this socially constructed, parent-mediated, school-reinforced, science-affirmed, societally-embedded belief system that ultimately is going to lead to consumption that destroys Earth, life on Earth at least. And then humans will be gone, and then hopefully a better species will arise. But until we give up on ourselves, ourselves meaning all of life on Earth, I think there's a way out of it. And what's so been so interesting about this Wheel of Awareness practice in the book Aware is it drops people into awareness beneath these belief systems so that they begin to 
not just hear the idea because some dude wrote it in a book, but they start to perceive what is not the noun-like categorization of self as an entity, but they start to experience the verb-like reality of the self as an event that's deeply interconnected with other unfolding events. And this shift from noun perception of entity to verb perception of events requires a certain letting go of the noun-like hold on certainty, and you drop into the fluidity of uncertainty and open possibility. And there's a whole thing where you can see why that happens. And we can get into that if you want. But the bottom line is, I think the level of human consciousness that has stayed at the noun-like perception of reality is going to kill us. It is reaffirming this noun-like yourself is in that body, myself is in this body, Jose's self is in his body right here, you know, and, and then we say, oh, there are three entities in this room doing this podcast now, right? And so you say, well, duh, of course that's true. So at what's called a Newtonian classical physics view, where there are certainties and absolute rules about large objects, we see that the body represents the self. But I think there's this deeper capacity of consciousness to drop out of what's called the Newtonian classical physics view into really what is a quantum perception where the quantum laws, and just look at the 2018 July edition of Scientific American, because when I started talking like this, people would roll their eyes and they go, oh, you're talking about quantum physics. And fortunately, the cover story of Scientific American was, when does the quantum realm become the classical realm? And what does that mean? On one level, physics is one thing. What it means for human consciousness is building on that. Let me just say the way I got introduced to these two realms was I took two ideas. Integration is health that we talked about, and consciousness is needed for change. And with my patients, I just invited them to integrate consciousness, which sounds wild, but basically there was a table in my office, and I said, if integration is differentiating and linking, you can integrate consciousness by differentiating the knowing. Like if I say, hello, Ken, like right now, do you know I said hello? Yes. Yeah, so that's awareness. But I that, had to think about that for a second. <laughs> okay, but you know it, right? That's no, awareness. Yeah. I not only know it, but there's something in my body that knows it even better than my mind knows exactly. it. Exactly. Well, let's put the mind in your body and say your head knows it on one level and your body knows levels. So let's not, let's not compare. Let's, okay, I'm going to yeah. ask you to shift mind from your head like you just did. Okay. But everyone does that. But it actually is going to help us if we realize mind is both fully embodied and fully relational. So yes, your head knows it one way, your body knows another way. Cool. Because those are physical realities. The mind is within and between, as we'll talk about. So, okay, so I bring my patients up from the chair or the couch, and I say, hey, here's a table. In the hub of this table, looks like a wheel, there's this glass center. You know, let's put the knowing part of hello, Ken. But on the rim, let's put anything that could be the known, in this case, the sound, hello, Ken. Let's put the hearing, that, that which is known, hello, Ken, as a point on the rim for hearing. And, but you also can see me. You could smell me, you could taste me, you could touch me. But then you have not only those outer energy flow patterns using your body as a reference point, we now go inside your body and there's an inner flow of bodily sensations from muscles and bones and organs. Then you can move this proverbial or metaphoric spoke of attention over to not just the first five senses on the first segment, 
second segment has the interior of the body. You now move it over to the third segment, which is your mental activities of emotions, thoughts, memories, hopes, dreams, longings, desires, beliefs, images, all that stuff. Then you explore those. Then you even bend the spoke around and aim it right into the hub to just experience awareness of awareness. Then you straighten that spoke and send it out again to the fourth segment, which is our relational sense, the most underdeveloped sense of our interconnectedness. So I do this, patients with anxiety or mild to moderate depression or trauma would start getting better. It was like unbelievable. This is the wheel of awareness. Yes. That you have developed essentially as a secular meditation practice. I didn't even know to use the word meditation. I just called it an integrative reflective exercise. This goes back before that moment with John Kevin. Oh yeah, this was in the 90s when I created this table and I just happened to use it. It was like 98, 99. So it was all about helping your, I guess, patients? Patients, the people I work with in therapy. Okay, because you were, you were a clinical psychologist? I'm a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist? Right, yeah, Got a psychiatrist. It. I have a medical training and trained in psychiatry, but also I'm an attachment researcher, so I'm trained to study relationships. So you were working with patients, and you were basically developing just a way for them to focus their attention on a series of ways of thinking to help them to move from one point of focus in their own awareness to another and in the process, help them to ground or to get clear or to, you found that it had a, a beneficial effect on them. That's a beautiful way of saying it. In my mind, the experience went something like that because you're actually saying this beautiful way of describing the outcome. I'm both a scientist and a therapist, right? So from a scientific point of view, I was building this field called interpersonal neurobiology with my colleagues. And two things came out from that consilient search. One was integration looks like it's the fundamental mechanism of health, whether it's in the brain or the body or the relationships we have with one another or society. Integration is health. That was the idea. And it was emerging. And I was just writing a book called The Developing Mind, which kind of sets the science out of that. The second thing was that consciousness, which includes both awareness and what you're aware of, was the basis of change. So whether you're looking at, you know, parent-child relationships, and that's what I'm trained to study, or, you know, I was working with teachers in schools, you know, the educational experience, or psychotherapy. You needed consciousness for intentional positive change. So then I just had this weird scientific idea. What if I put those two together with my patients? What if I put integration as health, consciousness needed for change, and what if you integrated consciousness? That was all. And then I just had this wacky idea of there was this table, and I got my patients up from the chair or the couch. It was a round table? It's a round table with a glass up. We still have it. And, and I said, hey, let's integrate consciousness. So, of course, my patients thought I was like nuts. And they go, what? And I go, integration is health, consciousness needs to change. Let's try it. Let's put the awareness, when I say hello, Ken, into the hub. Let's put anything you're aware of on the rim. And let's make a spoke. It looked like it's this thing holding up the table. Let's just imagine a singular spoke. And one by one, let's differentiate all the rim elements from each other. And let's differentiate them from the hub. And let's even explore the hub. And let's link it all together after we've differentiated through this movement of the spoke. And people start getting better. So it was, it was just with the weird idea of let's integrate consciousness. And I just called it a reflective integrative exercise. You know, I was taught to do relaxation techniques and all this kind of stuff, guided imagery. So for me, that's a very natural thing to now do basically a guided reflective exercise. Then I wrote The Developing Mind. Then Mary Hartzell and I wrote Parenting from the Inside Out. 
Then Rich Simon asked me to do this thing with John Kabat-Zinn. So I said, what's going on? And that was the same time people were saying this meditation thing. So then, then John had me go in 2006 to this meditation retreat. And for me, I, and I write it even in the Mindful Brain, I said, this is kind of like the wheel. But no one was like talking about integration or anything. So I just, and even when I presented it to one of the teachers there, he goes, oh, don't be so sure. And so I, so I wouldn't tell anyone about it. Kind of. So then I taught it to my students who are therapists. They started getting better and their clients started getting better. So then I started doing workshops and I did it because I'm a scientist as a survey. So I did it with 10,000 people in workshops, recorded the results when people would take the microphone. And it was mind blowing, not just my patients. People would drop into the hub during the exercise. It takes about 30 minutes. We were putting it up on our website. Lots and lots of people have done it because we give it away for free. And we get feedback and emails, but these are the recordings from the workshops is what I draw from the survey. People would take the microphone and say, when I was in the hub, this is one Microsoft engineer who didn't want to come to the workshop. Is He had just retired. He was 70 years old and never meditated, never been in therapy. So proud of that. And then he says, after I did the wheel, something shifted when I bent the spoke around. And when I went out to the park, and he says this really slowly, basically, he's watching a gardener watering the roses. And then he says, with tears in his eyes in front of 500 people, we are all the same thing. I am the water. I'm the rose. I'm the bird. I'm the butterfly. He's crying. And his wife said he's never been like that ever before. I was teaching this in a parliament, the Wheel of Awareness, where they're having some troubles, and they asked me to go there. And a parliamentarian said, when I bent the spoke around, I didn't want to share it with anyone because they think I was weak. But, you know, I never felt so much love and connection before in my life. And when I said, oh, you didn't want to share it with anyone, he goes, no, because I'd look weak. And I said, but let me ask you something. I said, when you're making public policy, are you leaving love out of the reasoning, out of the decision-making process? So then his eyes got really big and he went over to talk to his fellow parliamentarians. This has happened in every workshop I've done. So I took the emerging findings from the 10,000-person survey. I then mapped that out onto a very simple diagram that my daughter did for the wear book, but then in, in the workshop I did in my own way on a napkin, or actually in a journal. And I drew it out so that this is hard to do just with auditorily, but basically, if you can imagine this, the movement from possibility to actuality takes us from what quantum physicists call a sea of potential or quantum vacuum, which is the formless source of all form. Energy doesn't rest there. Potential energy rests there. And from that arises, through a degree of probabilities, actuality. So like if I'm going to say one of a million words, Ken, and you're going to guess it, we'd be down near zero, one out of a million chance you'd know. But when I finally say, you know, city, it's become an actualization. But if I'm only going to say things related to, you know, geographical locations like city or state or something like that, let's say there's only 10 words, it would be from a higher plateau of only 10 things, you would emerge into one of the actualizations of those 10. So you can either come from the ultimate open space, which on this graph when it's three-dimensional is called the plane of possibility. You arise into plateaus of increased probability to peaks of actualization. So I mapped out the survey findings that when people would take the microphone and say what was going on. And it looks like the following may be true. And I say maybe with a thousand underlines, but a thought or an emotion or memory is a peak when energy has emerged into an actualization. Just beneath the peak is thinking, emoting, and remembering. 
Further down is a plateau, which includes a state of mind or intention or mood. And then the question is, if those are all rim points, what is the hub? So I looked at all the data of when people bend the spoke around, and this is what they say. When they're in this hub and hub experience, they say, time disappeared. I felt connected to everything. It was both empty and full at the same time, filled with joy, God, love, this sense of incredible tranquility. So I thought, what could that be on this graph? And then the notion arose that the awareness, the knowing of the hub as a metaphor might just correspond to when energy's probability position has moved out of these peaks and out of these plateaus into the plane of possibility. The question is, why did time disappear? Why did the feeling of being connected to everything arise? Why did this happen in every workshop all over this planet? Even if people had never meditated or ran meditation centers, why was that happening? And here's my possible suggestion. Well, this is my suggestion of a possible view. Consciousness, the experience of being aware, is when energy's position, the probability position, has moved into the plane of possibility. And there are seven incredible implications of that. One, why awareness arises from that, the subjective experience of knowing. I said, hello, Ken, we don't know. But even if you look at the brain correlates, nobody knows why, but it looks like it might. Number two, it gives you a pause between impulse and action. And there are all sorts of examples where people drop into the hub as a metaphor, but they're dropping into the plane. So they're not allowing a plateau of a, an impulse to turn into a peak of actualization, like a hit of someone. Number three, when they drop into the plane of possibility, all the other options are there. So the reason consciousness enables choice and change is because it's the mathematical space where other possibilities rest. Number four, the reason time disappears is because in the quantum state, there is no arrow of time in the quantum realm. That only exists in the Newtonian, what's called macro state realm. That's a long discussion. That's number five. Number six, the reason we feel interconnected to everything is because in the quantum realm, reality is about unfolding events. They're verb-like interconnected events. Whereas in the Newtonian classical realm, it's more about entities bumping into each other. And then finally, number seven, it's totally amazing, but in 2015, the final study called Closing the, the Final Loophole was done that shows that a process called entanglement, where you take quanta of energy, which are called microstates, not macrostates, although you see a little bit this in the macrostate level, but you see it for sure in the microstate quantum level. You see that two entities, like two electrons that are paired up, that then get separated like by an inch, still influence each other. A foot still influence each other. 10 feet, a mile, 10 miles, 100 miles, 1,000 miles, doesn't matter. Spatial distance does not impede entangled relationality among quantum states that are coupled. So it's called non-locality. And when I've talked to people about when they drop into the hub, they start feeling this deep interconnectivity. One woman even said in a workshop, she started crying. And she said, you finally helped me. She's 65. For the, help me because in 50 years since I was 15, I thought I was insane. But what you just described, 
about awareness arising from the plane of possibility and everything you just said about quantum versus Newtonian or classical states makes me realize I'm the opposite of insane. I just have this, for whatever reason, ability to drop into this quantum awareness and realize these seven things. So it's been an amazing journey because ultimately this gets to your question of the self. If we stay at the Newtonian level of nouns and think that the self is in our body and we're not deeply interconnected with other people, even people not like us, or other living beings, nature, we're going to kill this planet and we're going to kill our spirit. And so the amazing connection between spirituality, mysticism, religion, and science from this scientific perspective is this beautiful bridge that I think is going to help everyone. When did you first have that timelessness connected experience for yourself? The first I recall of it, there were times when I was an adolescent, maybe 12. And I remember having this weird fluctuation between feeling this timeless connection with everything, but then kind of rising out of that and being petrified of death and incredibly aware of the transience of time and then dropping into this sense of eternity, but then dropping up, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to die, I'm going to, and then dropping, you know, and it scared me. It happened more than once? Oh, yeah. Yeah, in fact, I, there's a friend of mine, Tommy, who was a professor at NYU in anthropology, and we were, we were remembering a conversation we had as 12-year-olds. Now we're not, you know, we're in our 60s, you know, but we were remembering that conversation. And it was that kind of thing of going, wow, you can have this kind of perspective on all that stuff, even at that age, but it was just scary to me. And I got to say, writing... And there's the, no context for it. No context. And writing the aware book now has totally transformed my relationship with death. It's been so interesting and, and, and relieving in many ways. And, you know, people who are starting to read the book share that view. And that's kind of what you get at the, f- the fourth part of the book is you're seeing how do you apply this experience of the plane of possibility. So it's not just someone re- write, you know, reading a book about it. Because you're doing the wheel practice in part one, you're diving into these deep mechanisms of the mind in part two. And then you explore how other people use it in part three. By part four, you're really ready to say, how do I apply living from the plane of possibility in my life? Even though you're fluctuating between plateaus and peaks, which are our more common thing, like driving a car and pressing on the brakes is a bunch of plateau and peak activity. There's nothing wrong with that. You want an integrated life. But a lot of people are scared of the plane because we're trained from school days onward. Know the answer, know the answer, know the answer. So you, you, you think the comfortable place is to be in the peak. But, you know, myself is in my body. That would be a peak thought. But when you drop into the plane of possibility, life becomes this unfolding, emergent, verb-like set of events. And it's incredibly joyful when you get there, but you may have some plateaus that tell you that uncertainty is not good. Go back into peak noun-like view. Don't go into verb-like things where you can't own something. You're more like the flame of a candle rather than just the wax. 
Well, in every mystical tradition, the analogous process that people are going through to what you're describing in a much more scientific way is this process of purification and surrender. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I don't, I don't have a background in that. I so find say it more so about it. extraordinary that you don't see it through that lens because that is such a common way to talk about this kind of experience. It actually blows my mind that you have arrived at where you have without knowing that particular body of literature. But it's a, here we are. Yeah. But surrender, essentially, and there's levels and levels of that, has to do with letting go of your own sense of, quote-unquote, control, because you realize, man, ultimately, you're not in control of anything that's going to happen in your life. There's other forces in play that are taking you there as you can increase your sensitive awareness of how they present themselves to you, you can flow with that guidance towards a place where you are much more in action, which you are in flow with what's coming, much, frankly, happier and clearer, right? In the process of that surrender, you come against all sorts of blockages, fears that emerge that keep you from moving into surrender easily. You have to overcome one fear after another, very deeply held in your psyche or in your heart or in your, your sense of self, and that you can go through these periods that they call like the dark night of the soul, mm. right? Where the fear of letting go into energetic action, as you're describing it, is something that you just have to work through and confront on yeah. some level. Oh, that's incredible, Ken, because from this 3P diagram, you know, peaks, plateaus, and plane, you get a framework, basically, where, let, I'll give you an example. I did a workshop. We had 150 people in the workshop. We were together for a week. And then we do the wheel, and, you know, you do the part where you, you know, bend the spoke around, whatever. This woman takes a microphone after we completed the wheel, and she says, uh, I need to share that I've died. And, like, everyone's listening. I go, okay, can you tell us what that feels like to be dead? And so she goes on and describes it in very painful detail. And she gets to a part of her description. I'm trying to anchor her in her body and work with her in front of all these folks. And then she says the following statement. She says, I'm in pieces and I'm at peace. So I said, okay, please hold there if you can. And she was feeling a little more grounded. So I said, let's have other people share because it was a big room. And, and then we're going to go through a scientific discussion like what you and I just did with the plane of possibility. And let's see, we'll come back to you then. Is, are you okay with that? She said, fine. So other people shared and, you know, because there are these, you said, dark night of the soul, these kinds of disorganizational states that are, for some people, inevitable to get reorganized. So anyway, so then she hears the discussion of the plane of possibility, the plateaus and the peaks being where we're locked into often a sense of self as a noun, and that when you learn to drop out of those, it can be disorienting because here's the secret of this whole graph, this diagram, uncertainty of the plane of possibility, massive, maximal uncertainty, is the same as maximal possibility. So we ironically develop these plateaus that imprison us of fear of that uncertainty, but then it keeps us from change. So... When I come back to her after she goes through that discussion and I said, well, can I come back to you and can you share with us how you're doing? She's got this glow on her face and this huge smile and she just says, all I need to do is this and she points to her smile. And for the rest of the week, her friend said, they've never seen her so relaxed, so happy and I talked to her in depth and she felt just this liberation. 
And this has happened in many, many, many workshops. I mean, almost every time. And from a scientific point of view, I think this reinforcement in family life, in schools and culture that you're supposed to know something as a noun reinforces the separate self. And then people try to live that way because that's what everyone seems to be doing. But on some deep level, they know something's just off. Something's not right. So when I think for myself as a 12-year-old, that's when I realized, well, something's not quite right. And I just kind of kind of left that go. And that's a whole other story I talk about in a book called Mind. But for this woman, it was incredibly liberating for her. And for people who do the wheel, while there may be challenging moments of disorientation, so far, people get through that. And this is why I wrote the book, was so that people could see what are the challenges. For example, if you've had a, a difficult attachment history with abuse or neglect, how does dropping into uncertainty for you have particular plateaus that say, do not go there. But the sad thing for someone who's a trauma victim is that, well, of course you understand why they're going to cling to certainty. The pathway towards change is through the plane of possibility. That's where other options are. So if you've been locked into, I need to be certain of who I am, I need to be certain, sadly and paradoxically, it's keeping you from the very pathway of becoming a verb self, which I call a mui, where you're a me in your body and a we in your relationships with other people and nature, so that the we then arises and it's full of liberation. The story you just told about the woman who felt she had died, that metaphor of dying is one that you hear again and again and again mm. in every mystical literature. You need to die in order to reach the next level of attainment. There's an old self, an old sense of who you are that needs to be let go. And that can be an extremely painful and frightening process. Yeah. And then you can be, you know, to use the Christian dogma, born again. Mm. Born again comes from oh. this notion of the old self having died away in order to make room for this open expression where you're not holding on so much to your need for certainty. Wow. Where you can flow. That's so interesting because in the diagram, you would say fixed plateaus or ones that are stuck in rigidity basically imprison you. So the way we would use a 3P framework for what you just said was to really achieve a state of integrative health, you need to not be just bound up in certain energy configurations that we call plateaus that are only allowing certain peaks to arise that ironically, society may reinforce, say, that's Ken, this is who you are, this is your personality, these are your features, and go, oh, I've got a plateau that Ken is this way. If I drop into the spaciousness of uncertainty and just let things happen rather than make them happen, see, integration is the natural emergence from presence, and presence is the plane of possibility, it's the hub. So when you can drop into presence, then integration naturally arises. And what does it mean? Freedom, innovation, creativity, this way you join with others with kindness and compassion. And it's a beautiful 3P graph that's so simple, but when you map it onto the wheel as a practice with the graph as a mechanism, it's, I mean, I've had people from different spiritual traditions. Uh, I could just name them all, but like I haven't, it's amazing how many there are. And people will say, this graph you have matches what my field does, what my field is all about. But there are all these disparate traditions. And I go, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. And I don't have any training in any of them. 
but I'm just glad about the consilience. That is, people have found a methodology, sometimes for thousands of years, that works, and now we have a scientific view, I guess, of what they all seem to share. So instead of them fighting with each other and saying, mine's better than yours, this is a consilient framework that so far seems to match spiritual traditions, religious traditions, mysticism, and even what poets say about the nature of reality. And when I've read autobiographical works, when people get into the deep nature of what they've been wrestling with, the framework seems to apply. So that doesn't make the framework accurate, but so far it seems to consiliently match up with all these different human explorations of the nature of reality. So did you go through your own equivalent of a kind of death experience, of letting go of the fear, of having gone through something where you knew that you could then trust the flow? It may have been a subtle death, but I noticed a big transition in me. And in fact, many people, colleagues and students, as I was developing this with the 10,000-person study, notice a shift in me, and they would go, there's kind of an edge that's gone, and there's a fluidity that's emerging, and and it may be just what you're saying, because I, you know, what I did, I think, was since the wheel became a regular practice for me that I try to do every day if I can, where I'm dropping into the hub every day, I can then live throughout the rest of the day with this access to the plane of possibility, and then approaching things like worries or concerns about death or all these things have a very different quality to them when you're living from the plane of possibility. And that's why, you know, in in the book I wanted to just share, it isn't like I need to go to a cave and just try to be in the hub the whole time, you know, be in the plane. It's not about living in the plane, it's living from the plane. And that has been a big, big transformation, I think, in my life. What prompted that shift for you at that time? Doing the wheel. I mean, I, How long had you been doing it by that point? You know, maybe, gosh, you know, I started doing what I was doing with my patients. Maybe like a couple of years into it of teaching it to other people. But then I said, you know something, if I'm teaching it to other people, and I think I got inspired by my wife, Caroline. She was doing regular meditation practice. And I, I actually wasn't because I just learned it from Kabat-Zinn and all this kind of stuff. So then I started not just doing it with my patients, having them do this reflective exercise as a psychotherapeutic intervention. That's what it was. And then a workshop activity I was teaching as a workshop facilitator. Then I said, oh, you know, why don't you walk the talk or walk the walk, whatever you say. You know, and I said, okay. And so then with Caroline's inspiration, I would start doing a formal meditative practice. And that that was a while ago. You know, that's probably, I don't know, 10 years ago. But that's when the shift happened. And so you were doing it for every day for half an hour or something? Yeah, it's about half an hour. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's so fun because every day is different. I mean, the thing about that's amazing is you get what science has shown is there are three types of meditation that have been studied that develop focused attention, open awareness, and compassion training. I call it kind intention. And the wheel has all three. The first two segments, you're doing focused attention. The third segment, you're doing open awareness, including bending the spoke. The fourth segment of relationality, you're doing kind intention training. So just by good fortune, the wheel had all three of the research-proven things that what does do? Reduces stress, improves immune function, optimizes cardiovascular functioning, reduces inflammation by changing the molecules sitting on top of DNA, epigenetic regulators that regulate gene expression. You even optimize the level of an enzyme, telomerase, 
that repairs the ends of the chromosomes so it keeps your he cells healthier and living longer. And when Alyssa Eppel, who wrote the book, The Telomere Effect with Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize for this, read the manuscript before it went to the printer, she said, Dan, Dan, did it go to the printer? I said, no, not yet. What's, what, what happened? Did I, what did I do wrong? She goes, nothing wrong. Everything's correct. You just left one thing out. And I said, oh, it hasn't gone to the printer. So what did I leave out? I thought I had to write another chapter. She said, everything you say in your book that the wheel does slows the aging process. And so I wrote back to her, I said, how could I say it slows the aging process? She goes, because we've proven that it does. And these are the world's experts in aging. So I put it in the book. So this accumulation of physiological shifts with the three pillar practices, focused attention, open awareness, kind intention training, and the wheel, apparently people tell me, I don't, I'm not, you know, this is what they tell me. It's the only practice that has all three built into one practice. So I had been doing it and, you know, it so I think for all those physiological reasons, I felt better. It also integrates your brain. You know, you grow the corpus callosum, the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, and the you get a more interconnected connectome. So the three-pillar practice, all embedded in the wheel, but those are studied individually, grows a more integrated brain. And you get these sort of existential shifts in defining yourself, you know, what's your existence as a self, where you drop into the plane because you're accessing the hub, and there's kind of this liberation into being more at ease with the verb-like nature of reality. And this self becomes a part of that, more like a selfing experience. And then instead of putting the self as a noun in a body, you realize you are deeply interconnected with all of humanity and with all of nature. So you're doing this practice, the, the wheel of awareness, showing the same kinds of benefits that meditation in longtime meditators is also showing in terms of the physiological and psychological benefits. Well, that's an assumption because the, the study of the three pillar practices yes. lead to those benefits. And this wheel of awareness practices pr practice has all three. So, so no one studied the wheel systematically. I've got a bunch of researchers, now the book is out, excited to do that. So I have a bunch of brain labs wanting to do it. And they want to study what the hub looks like when, with brain correlates. And we can, we can look at long-term wheel of awareness practitioners to show that. So let's be really clear. It's the research on three pillar practices usually done individually. So we want to see if you put it into one practice, do you get the same results? And you may even see synergistically more results. So that will have to be done, but it's from the three pillar practices. Yeah. Got it. So the benefits are very much about how you can be a healthier and happier person functioning in society, living your life, being more effective at what you do, credit connection to family. So all of these positive results. Exactly. In the mystical lineages where meditation plays a big role, obviously that's a part of it, but there's another piece that also can happen where you start to become more aware of a different nature of reality where interconnection is certainly a critical element of that, but other things can emerge. I'm wondering if that has been, a, has played a role for you in your own, as you're discovering and developing the wheel of awareness practice, somehow completely apart from, and, but in parallel to all these legacy practices that are out there that have a lot of religious often dogmatic language associated with them and behavior associated with them. If there are other ineffable connections that have emerged for you. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm since I'm not familiar with the spiritual legacy traditions other that you're talking about, I can't say, oh, yeah, I have those other things. So I could just speak from my own experience and from the 10,000-person study and all the feedback I get. Living as a verb is, and people just use the word transformation all the time, it transforms your sense of reality from filtering ongoing experience as nouns, entities bumping into each other, and loosening that perceptual filter, not just as an idea or a thought, but as the way you experience reality through perception, to drop into verb-like unfoldings and events that have massive interconnectivity to each other. So people start talking about becoming aware of the fluidity of that word self. So self becomes more like a plural verb than a singular noun. And that is a transformation of identity. It's more like an integration of identity as a we, you know, a me plus a we equals a we. But also there's a, and I could just try to articulate this from my own experience, there's a kind of dropping into this spaciousness that has the quality of eternity, that has the quality of infinity, that is incredibly filled with love. It has this sense of joy and a kind of awe and gratitude that I do work with the wonderful researcher, Dacher Keltner, who studies what, he, what are often called the um, self-transcendent emotions of awe, gratitude, and uh, compassion. And I said to Gadatka when we were teaching together, I said, would you be okay if we stopped using the word self-transcendent and used the word self-expanding? And he was completely fine with that. So you get this expanded sense of self, not like you're transcending the self, but rather what you experience as selfing starts to include the trees and the sky and the earth so self-expansion is a part of the, this journey of the wheel of awareness. When Dacker, you know, at this meeting with this 150 people we had living for, together for a week doing the wheel and a lot of other things, when he did a survey of them on a formal research scale, the mysticism scale that's used in hallucinogen research, he got over half of the people on almost every mysticism score raised their hands. Now, you wouldn't include that because you can't yet want to have them fill it out themselves, but this is just a big group of 150 people. But at least as an initial impression, he was startled by that. And that what, what does that actually mean? Like, using do that? you feel like you, who you are is larger than your body? Do you feel time disappear? Do you feel a state of awe? Do you feel confronted with something that's larger than what you usually call yourself? Do you feel that you are a part of something that you can't really understand that's bigger than you, this kind of, these are all, there's a formal scale. I, did, I didn't know about it, actually, but there's exactly what you'll see the quotes in the Aware book. It's what Michael Pollan actually talks about in his book, How to Change Your Mind. And it's so funny, when I read Michael's book, How to Change Your Mind, about hallucinogen use, my book had already gone to the printer. And the quotes he has, what hallucinogens do just in a brief time, the wheel of awareness does when you drop into the hub. And Dacker, Keltner, survey, the exact survey that Pollan was, was quoting from the researchers who are legally doing hallucinogen research, it's exactly the same survey, these and are, it's the hub. These are the guys 
if I get it right, that that's the survey that came out of Johns Hopkins? Yes. All right, it was developed by Roland, Roland Griffiths. Exactly. Okay, so I'm just going to jump ahead into this, and you can tell me I'm totally out of my mind here, but this is okay. So I have Maybe to be, you're in your mind. I was sitting with Roland Griffiths this weekend. Oh, no way. Yes. Upstate okay. at a small kind of private conference talking about DMT and entities. Mm-hmm. Where it's a you know it was meant to be a private kind of conversation. I can talk about it because it's not it's not like a, a secret. I'm, it's not a secret event, but it okay. was just more they wanted to have a private conversation among certain people who are familiar with these sort of psychedelic states and the experience of the word they were using was entities, but you can call it spirits, you can call it angels, you can call it you know all kinds of different ways that beings, which may or may not be projections of the self on some level, or are connected, or, or, or projections of our interconnections of selves, right, emerge in that, in that state very quickly, right? You don't need to do a, lot, lot, do a lot of training. You smoke DMT, and for seven minutes, you are propelled into a state where these things can suddenly show up in your face. And so I'm sitting next to Roland Griffiths and talking a little bit about my own experience, which is pretty anomalous and bizarre and fascinating and propels me in a lot of the work that we're doing here. And, uh, and he's the guy who developed, his team, as I understand it, developed the survey that you're talking about. The, yeah, but the, I think it's the mysticism something scale, which I actually wasn't familiar with until after I published the book or print, went the book in the printer and I read Michael's book. Anyway, so the only reason I mentioned this is because the Roland turns to me at a certain, I'm saying we're sitting next to each other in the second half of the event and he goes like, can we talk about your mystical experiences? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because he wants... He was genuinely curious to understand more about other, how other people are having these kinds of connections to, how should I put it, higher vibrational, energetic entities, using entities in this context, not the one you were talking about before, that make themselves apparent in your awareness and come to you and work with you in a constructive way. So you suddenly feel like there's this thing outside of yourself, bigger than yourself, that l- is full of love, that is also has access to information that you don't have, that is working with you in a constructive way to help you in bettering yourself in this and future and past lifetimes. I'm sure that's a little bit outside the parameters of your research, but meditation in the mystical lineages does lead to this kind of experience if you stick with it long enough, work within certain parameters, or frankly, are just lucky enough to have certain things happen to you in the midst of your experience. It's only bang, you've got that kind of access. And I'm just wondering, well, how does that, how does that fit within the work that you've been doing, do you feel, personally? How does, how does mm-hmm. that resonate for you? Well, Ken, it's a really fabulous question, and let me lay out a couple of just you know, foundational issues, just so you know, and people know. So, you know, I have a, uh, a relative in my family who's a drug addict. So I, I have had since I was a kid, an absolute aversion to using any substances that alter my state of mind. So I've never used them. Not because of a moral sentiment, but or you know, ethical issue, just because personally, psychologically, it, it was just too painful. So I never did. But people always say I was stoned. You know, <laughs> they'd always say that to me. So I was, I, I, I didn't know exactly what that meant, but uh, so whatever. But I mean, so, so that's just one developmental thing just to share. And it's not a big deal, but it's just so, you know, I don't have personal experience with what you're saying from drug use. 
So that's the first thing to say. When I've gone through life and have had experiences like that, let's just take, for example, when I was in training to be a therapist and this beautiful woman, Mary L. Fuller, taught me to do guided imagery. I would take patients or myself, because the only way she teaches you how to do it with patients is she does it with you first, where you meet spirit guides with guided images sitting in Marielle's office in her couch. She invites you to let spirit guides come and all sorts of wild guides come. And, you know, my office happened to be right next to her. That's why she took me in as a very young trainee. But I would hear through the very thin UCLA walls the professors who would go, you know, to get taught by her. And I would hear all their spirit guides, even though I didn't want to, but I was trying to do work. And through the walls, I heard that what their journeys were. So, so this was no hallucinogens, just the incredible power of Marielle Fuller, who is this, she's no longer bodily with us. But so that's the first thing to say. The second thing I'll just, and so I was always open to that. Now, is that a manufacturer of the human brain to just allow uh, you to have a sense of either something inside the body give you wisdom or is it something coming outside the body? I wasn't worried about whether which way it was. I was open to anything. So then I met John O'Donohue, who passed away about 10 years ago. His body died anyway. And um, he was an Irish Catholic, former priest, philosopher, poet, but an Irish mystic. And he and I started working together, teaching together, and writing a book together. Then he died. It was the saddest thing for lots and lots of reasons. But in the book we were writing together, I would say to John, I said, you know, I've never used the word mysticism before. And you're a mystic, you know, a Gaelic mystic. You know, Celtic mystic. What what do you mean by mystic? And he goes, oh, Dan, I won't do his Irish brogue, but he would say, that's someone who believes in the reality of the invisible. So I said, well, I'm a scientist. The only way to truly be a scientist is to believe in the reality of the invisible. It's a total arrogance. I think some people would use the word hubris to think that a human body with a limited capacity for perception and conception would be able to conceptualize all of reality. So a truly scientific stance is to say, I'm open to the existence in reality of things I can't perceive with my eyes, hear with my ears, or even conceive of with this body I'm born into. So John and I were doing amazingly uh, fun and fascinating bringing together of philosophy and poets, poet, poetics and mysticism anyway, and then his body died. And so we had to stop our work together in that way, but I'm still deeply, deeply open to that set of issues. And then when I started doing the Wheel of Awareness systematic study, people would come up with things. And one of the things that happened in the middle of the study was Stan Groff asked me to come to his scientific, not scientific, I was the scientist there, but a gathering where he did the holotropic breathing, which was Stan Groff who had been observing more LSD trips than anyone. And as a psychiatrist. As a psychiatrist legally mm -hmm. in Europe and then in, at, at Hopkins. I think he was at Hopkins. Anyway, then it was made illegal. So he came up with this other thing that was as close as he could get. So he did this holotropic breathing where pe and he would allow me to study what people said at the gathering. It was a week-long gathering in the desert. And, you know, and so, so I had my own notions of why people were seeing spirit entities and did you do the holotropic oh, of course method? i did it yeah and jack cornfield was my buddy when we did it and oh, wow. beautiful wild things came up so i was totally open to it he allowed me to do the wheel of awareness with everyone and he had this statement he made in public so i can say it was one of the deepest meditations he had ever done when you see the overlap when people get into the hub 
with what people do with holotropic breathing or with hallucinogens. I don't have an answer to this, but I think when you drop into the plane of possibility, what you're permitting yourself to experience is stuff, and whether it's arising from your body and the brain's incredible capacity to imagine things, or you're tapping into forces from outside your body. Uh, I'll give you an example. I just did a week retreat with this beautiful, beautiful teacher named John Milton, who runs the way of nature. And he's trained in every Eastern tradition. He's trained in native indigenous American traditions. That's his background. So I said to John, when there were a dozen of us doing this retreat, you know, do you use plant medicine? He goes, there's absolutely no need. Because when you drop into source, when you're going to do your three-day solo time, which he calls all one time, you'll experience anything that you would get on plant medicine without the side effects, you know. So I said, so you don't use plant medicine? He goes, no, I, you know, I did that when I was younger. There's absolutely no need to do it. So I said, well, what is source? They're dropping into source. He goes, pure awareness. It's the hub. So I go for my three-day solo, as all of us did, and the experience of separateness dissolves. And I am the creek. I am the tree. The rocks, these meditation rocks that there's evidence for 20,000 years, native people have been coming here to meditate. The rocks speak to me. I literally hear them speak to me. Come meditate on me in the morning, not now. I say, okay, fine. You know, come meditate, you know, the trees, the water. And then suddenly in the middle of my three day, a person walks by. Hello, she says. And I feel this sudden shift from being all one to now there's her and there's me. There's Dan and there's her. And I go, hello? And and she's walking on her way. And so I don't want to speak. I don't want to lose the all oneness. But I realize she's going to go run into all my colleagues who are down the path. I say, wait, 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 wait. You can't go there. You're not supposed to go here. You're supposed to stay in your own meditation area. And she didn't understand that. She was from another country. So anyway, so I explained it to her. I said, you got to go back. She goes, can't I go for a hike and meet everyone? I said, no, you can't meet everyone. No, just be with earth be with earth. She goes back, but for several hours, I, I didn't have a watch, but it what felt like several hours. There was this self other differentiation that came back and the rocks weren't speaking to me and the trees weren't talking, you know, connecting with me. And luckily I could drop out of that self other thing, which in the brain probably has this default mode network business. We don't, we don't need to get into it, but we, we know some of the neural correlates of a separate self. I could feel that it got activated suddenly when she said hello, and then slowly it went away and it became more integrated to my whole brain system. And then as I dropped into the plane, the idea of a, the noun Dan started loosening and I became the verb living entity of being the trees again, being the creek, being the cliff, being the rocks. And, you know, that phrase that John Milton uses, all one, instead of alone, was, you know, an extra L, of course, and a little separation, all one, not alone, was so beautiful. And, and we, the 12 of us, when we came out of our solo all one time, you know, I understood why John said you don't need plant medicine, but you need nature. You need this so interesting thing. And, you know, whether there is energy patterns coming and entities like beings that, you know, people do experience or, you know, you might say, well, you're hearing the rock speak to you. Yeah. Is that my brain and my head doing it? Maybe. Is that the actual rock? Maybe. I don't care. 
It's an experience I had. Now, people say, oh, you got to decide. Which is it? No, I don't have to decide. I'm open to the unknown. I'm open to the uncertainty of it. I don't need to have a noun-like fixed notion. And what's really interesting about it, and this is the work that all of us, the 12 of us, are in called generative social fields, is that there is a social field that I'm studying with Peter Sange and Otto Schammer and Meta Miriam Boll and all these other folks. And then this group we just gathered, just yesterday we were together, where we're going to try to study how do you drop into the plane of possibility and let this energy pattern arise that you can palpate, you can feel it. And we not only have an interpersonal social field, but there's a relational field I think we have with Earth that allows us to feel the trees connecting to us. So I was on a pilgrimage called the Pando Pilgrimage. And we went up to this forest in Utah where there are 4,700 seemingly separate quaking aspen trees. But when you go in six inches beneath the surface of the soil, you find the common root ball. And the DNA studies show that's one tree. It's amongst the largest and oldest living entities on Earth. So we have this illusion of our separateness, like Pando looks like it's separate trees. But when you drop into the plane of possibility, when you get beneath the soil of those plateaus and peaks, you realize the deep interconnectedness of reality. When you're alone and you are telling yourself what it is you're doing with your life, with your work, is there a simple thing that comes to you? It's like, yeah. here's what I'm going after. Love. The connection, the interconnectivity that open awareness brings is love. You know, and, and there's so much on our world that's incredibly wonderful, but the way human beings have constructed a separate self in contemporary culture is killing us. It's killing the soul. It's ki killing life as an integrated unfolding event, and it's locking it into an entity view, that kind of noun-like entity. It's making us you know, become incredibly materialistic as we desperately seek some kind of meaning and connection that some people call spirituality. It's not a word I grew up with, but I'm open to the idea that meaning and connection, a spiritual life, and science never should have been separated, and they no longer need to be separated when you dive into the reality of our deep interconnection. And ultimately, pure awareness and pure love are the same thing, and they allow us to embrace the interconnection of all life. People can study, learn the Wheel of Awareness on your website, right? You have recordings? Yeah, yeah, training? we give it away for free. Okay, you can you tell people exactly how they can find it? Yeah, you go to the website drdansiegel.com, which is D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L.com, drdansiegel.com, and then you go to resources, and you go to the tab that says Wheel of Awareness, and if you're going to do it just freestyle without reading the book, that's fine. I would start with the basic wheel first and then progress to the you know full wheel. And if you do it with the guidance of the book, you'll see this deep discussion of the plane of possibility. Um, and there's an audio book and there's all sorts of learnings you can do from the website too to deepen your, your exploration. Great. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been really a pleasure to have you here on, on the podcast. Yes. Ken, this has been fa fantastic. Thank you for having me. Dan makes an impassioned case that developing spiritual awareness is critical to our future. At base, he's making awakening into a political objective. 
Not that if we all go to mountaintops and meditate, that the world will suddenly vibrate at a higher frequency and all our problems are going to be solved. But that awakening is necessary in order for people to transform the lives they lead and find fulfillment in community rather than through stuff. And then we can recast our society in a sustainable way. How else is it going to happen? To learn more about Daniel Siegel, visit drdansiegel.com. That's drdaniel.siegel.com. And check out his new New York Times bestseller, Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. I want to thank Dan for being a guest on the podcast and thank you for joining us. If you like what we're doing here on The Evolver, please share these episodes with your friends through social media, leave a review or uh, just a ratings on iTunes, which frankly is really helpful for us. Those reviews really do make a difference. I've been getting some wonderful emails from people with some fascinating questions that I'm dying to answer. So we're now planning a new episode around those questions and whatever it is I can come up with to respond to them, to fill the space in between the questions on the podcast. And we would love to hear some more from you about things that you'd like us to discuss. So please drop us a note at theevolver at evolver.net. That's theevolver at evolver.net. Or you can direct message us on Instagram at theevolverpodcast. You can also follow us on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. And remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or the podcatcher of your choice. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and all the folks at Acast. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from the album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu, from the album Soul Visions, with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.